Acts when Kirk preached um, Mark uh, chapter 8 last week and ended with, um, who do you say that I am? Uh, when Jesus asked the disciples, and who do men say that I am? And it said, the next chapter started, and it said seven, eight days later, Jesus then went to the inner circle, as you, as you might say, the Peter, James, and John, and he said, follow me. But this time, he was saying, follow me. We're going to my secret prayer place. And they went up the mountain, and they climbed with him. And our Lord Jesus began to pray. Well, it was the end of a long day. And as Peter, James, and John had just heard Jesus teach them how to pray, um, they, I'm sure, were praying along with him, with him. And before long, though, their supplications turned into snores, and they fell fast asleep. While that happened, something else dramatic happened. Jesus began to shine a dazzling white. His face was altered, and all of a sudden Moses and Elijah appeared, and the Lord Jesus began talking to them. The three disciples woke up, and they may have wondered if they were still dreaming because of what they saw. Peter, in his, pulse, in his impulsive nature, not knowing what to say and maybe not even knowing what he was saying, said, Master, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. And as he was saying these things, a cloud came over them and they became petrified with fear. And a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my son. My chosen one, listen to him. What a sight to behold. The passage we're going to look at today is 2 Corinthians 3.18, but before we get to this morning's text, let's put it in context. The third chapter of 2 Corinthians contains a comparison of two covenants. These covenants were both intended as a means by which man was invited into a relationship with God. One is the covenant of law, the old covenant, and the other is the covenant of grace, the new covenant. In the first part of chapter 3, we find the contrast of the old and new covenants. Verses 6 through 11, we find the description of these covenants. In verse 7, the old covenant is called the ministry of death. Well, that's not very encouraging, is it? While the new covenant is called the ministry of the Spirit, which gives life. Well, that's more like it, isn't it? Verse 9 speaks of the Old Covenant as the ministry of condemnation and the New Covenant as the ministry of righteousness. Verse 7 through 11 declares the Old Covenant as glorious, but the New Covenant as exceeding the Old in glory. By the time we get to verse 11, we find the Old Covenant is done away while the New Covenant remains. Paul, having drawn the comparison between the two covenants, then goes on to tell us why the New Covenant far exceeds the old. In verses 12 through 18, Paul writes, Since we have such a hope, we are very bold, not like Moses, who would have put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end. But their minds were hardened. 
For to this day, when they read the Old Covenant, that same veil remains unlifted because only through Christ is it taken away. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image, from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. This passage takes us back to the Old Testament account of Moses meeting with God on Mount Sinai. When Moses came down from the mountain after 40 days of being in the presence of God, Moses' face shone with the reflected glory of God. But the longer he was away from this experience, the glory began to fade from Moses' face. To hide this fading glory, Moses covered his face with a veil. The old covenant was God's way of revealing our sin and his glorious perfection. It was put it was put into place to show us our inability to live up to the standard required for us to have a relationship with him. The fading glory Moses experienced was a testimony that God's glory could not be grasped and held onto through the old covenant, but that it was a ministry of death pointing to ultimate judgment. But it doesn't end there. Look in verse 18 with me. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Let me paraphrase that for you. And we all, having had our faces unveiled about who Jesus is, are going on beholding him as in a mirror, the glory of Jesus and are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory or manifest character of God's nature to another manifest character of God's nature. And the Lord, who is the Holy Spirit, is the only one that can produce this transformation within us. As we focus on this verse this morning, we're going to find three aspects of faith. The first reveals a regenerating look of faith, a sanctifying look of faith, and a glorifying look of faith, and how we need to respond to them. First, we see a look of regeneration. The phrase, with unveiled face, or having, have our, having had our faces unveiled, is a look that heals or restores. The veil that blinded us to our sin, once it is removed, allows us to see ourselves as we truly are a sinner that is only deserving of death and hell. It also allows us to see Jesus for who he is, the one and only righteous Son of God and Savior who endured the cross for all who believe. God opens spiritually blinded eyes and softens hearts of stone. Regeneration takes place. Verse 14 through 16 says, But their minds were hardened, for to this day, when they read the Old Covenant, that same veil remains unlifted because only through Christ is it taken away. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. But when one turns to the Lord, 
the veil is removed. When we first see the glory of the Lord, we see who we are without Christ and our desperate state, hopelessly destined for death and hell. When we see Christ for who he is, our perfect substitutionary lamb that satisfies the penalty for our sinfulness, and we trust in him alone and his death on the cross in our place, God declares us not guilty. In fact, he declares us righteous, just like Christ. We see this illustrated in Numbers chapter 21 and echoed again in John 3.14. The Israelites murmured and complained of God's gracious provisions for them. No surprise, if you know the Israelites, that's a normal happening for them. Finally, God released a plague of fiery serpents among them, and anyone bitten by the deadly snakes died. The people appealed to Moses, and Moses interceded for them before God. God graciously gave Moses some strange instructions for the cure. Moses was to make a serpent of brass, erect it on a pole, place it in the center of the camp so that whoever looked on it might be healed. John 3.14 says, And Jesus said, And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. Jesus reminded them that the serpent was lifted up to heal the people, and by reminding them that revealed the truth of the gospel as he was lifted up to die on a cross and to heal man of sin. He saw the fiery serpents as a symbol of sin in humanity, just as the bite of the serpent injected a fatal venom into the body of its victim, so the bite of the certain Satan has fatally inflicted all of mankind with sin. When an Israelite was bitten by one of the serpents in the wilderness, he was as good as dead. The poison attacked the entire system of the victim. It's the same with sin. The poison of sin present in every sinner blinds him, distorts his emotions, and renders him incapable of making wise decisions without divine help. When sin is present, a fatal poison is loosed in the bloodstream of humanity, and death will result. All have sinned, and the soul that sins, it shall surely die. But God, but God has made a perfect provision for sinners, just as he did for the stricken Israelites. God told Moses to make a serpent of brass and raise it up on a pole in the center of the camp. Note that the serpent was to be the exact likeness of the fatal enemy. Even so, God sent his son in the likeness of sinful flesh and as an offering for sin. In Scripture, brass represents sin brought under control or brought under judgment. So this serpent of brass pictures sin brought under the judgment of God. What a perfect picture of, Christ, of the cross of Christ where our sins were brought under the terrible judgment of God in the person of Jesus Christ who became the exact likeness of sinful flesh and offered himself for sin and sinners. In the Old Testament account, the cure was simply to look and live. But when Jesus told the story and used it as an illustration in John 3, 14 and 15, he said, 
And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. In the one case, the cure is by looking. In the other, it is by believing. But Jesus himself made a parallel between these two verses, between these two stories. And he said, looking is believing. Believing is simply looking to Jesus. Ephesians 2, 8, and 9 says it like this. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. It's through faith, believing and looking to Jesus. There's a account of a young man who lived in the 19th century that also illustrates this point. So go back with me here. I know we weren't here then, but Sunday, January 6th, the first Sunday of 1850. A 15-year-old boy started out alone to a Baptist church across town. This teenager was an unusual boy. By the time he was six years of age, he had read Bunyan's classic allegory, Pilgrim's Progress, no less than five times. By the time he was a middle teenager, he had read the voluminous works of the great Puritan theologians and obviously had a mind that showed an early inclination toward God. Yet he was not converted. On that cold Sunday, he never reached his intended destination. The snow was already many inches deep. And providentially, God then dumped a blizzard in front of this young man as he was trying to go to church. And he realized he couldn't make it any farther. He pulled aside into a side street. Determined still to go to church, he remembered there was a small Methodist chapel, and he was just going to slip in there and go to church. He went in and sat quickly down under the balcony in the back corner of the auditorium. Only about a dozen people braved the storm to attend the service, And even the minister didn't show up. The few leaders present consulted among themselves, and finally a poor, thin-looking man consented to bring the message. After a few moments of thumbing his Bible, he nervously mounted the pulpit steps and faced the tiny congregation. The speaker took as his text Isaiah 45, 22, which says, Look unto me, and be ye saved all the ends of the earth. For I am God, and there is none else besides me. The young boy later said, the man was very uneducated. He was obliged to to stick to his text for the simple reason that he had nothing else to say. But But the preacher said, he said, listen to this. The Savior is saying, look to me. I am sweating great drops of blood. Look to me, I am hanging on the cross. Look to me, I am dead and buried. Look to me, I rise again. Look to me, I am ascended and seated at the right hand of my father. The young boy later said, the man was, as he stuck to this text and made these comments, The boy said, I listened as though my life depended on what I heard. In about 10 minutes, the preacher had run out of ideas. 
Then as he squinted toward the corner where the young man was seated, he suddenly lifted a hand, clenched it into a fist and said, young man, you look very miserable and you're likely to stay miserable if you don't look to Jesus. Who wouldn't look with that kind of encouragement? I began to look to Jesus and I looked and I looked and I looked and I barely looked my eyes away and suddenly in an instant as I looked I was gloriously born from above born of God born again that boy shortly afterward became one of the greatest English speaking preachers of the gospel the world has ever seen and his printed sermons have been circulated around the world and read by millions that young boy was Charles Haddon Spurgeon Spurgeon's name is a monumental reminder of one of the greatest preaching and publishing ministries ever known on earth. And it began with an eternity-packed moment of beholding Jesus in his glory. After regeneration, we also see a sanctifying look of faith that transforms. The phrase in our text, beholding the glory of God, not only identifies who and what we see, but it also identifies how long we are to see it. Here is where our sanctification begins. This is a continuation of our, of our salvation. Salvation isn't a one time and you're done. Salvation is a beginning. Sanctification is the continuation of that beginning, of that saving work, that regeneration that has now become sanctification. The word translated beholdings in 1 Corinthians 3.18, has been translated three different ways, and I believe all three of them are correct. First, it is present tense continuous action verb that means to continually gaze. It means that we are to go on beholding Jesus with an unbroken, continuous focus. Our salvation only began when we were regenerated and justified by the work of Christ on the cross. It is not a one-time glance that is observed and soon forgotten. This beholding must be a lifelong habit. We must go on beholding Christ every day of our life. Obviously, this is not referring to physically looking at Jesus. Behold means to believe or to have faith. Beholding is another way of saying continue to have faith or continue to believe. We must make it a habitual character, characteristic of our daily lives. Say, how in the world do we do that? How do we behold Jesus? We behold him by gazing intently into the word of God. The word has been given to us to reveal Christ, to show us who he is, to reveal his character to us. Every time we listen to the Word of God being taught or sit down to read the Bible or spend time meditating and memorizing the Scripture, we have seen Christ. We have looked into His face and seen Him in all His glory. Why do we spend this time beholding Him? It is done with the purpose of bolstering our faith so that we might continually believe God and live a life that is sustained by faith. So, behold 
can mean a continuous action of faith and to go on beholding. Second, behold means to reflect. Reflect means to display the same thing even, in a, even if it's in a diminished way. Mirrors reflect light. A mirror is worthless in a room or space without light. We as believers focusing on Jesus are to be reflections of the light of life, not the prince of darkness or our own sin and darkness. Our lives began in darkness just as the first day of creation began with the darkness of night followed by the light of day. In Genesis 1-2, that darkness existed on the earth before God created light. God then called the light day and the darkness he called night. And there was evening and there was morning the first day. Notice God called the evening or the darkness and the morning or the light the first 24-hour period. Both of those together, he called it day. Like the first day, we started out our lives in darkness. But when we had our faces unveiled, we saw the light and God recreated us. We have a new description now. God now calls us children of light. And Jesus told us in Matthew 5, 14 through 16, you are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and do what? Give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Philippians 2, 14 through 16 says, Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish, in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. We are to now walk as children of light, reflecting the glory of God to the world as a reflection of Christ to those who are without Christ. We are also to reflect the glory for other believers to see. James 2.18 admonishes us to reflect the glory of God by our works. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you by my, my faith by my works. Others need to be able to see Christ in you and in me. Third, behold can also be translated, look into a mirror. The King James Version actually includes the words, as in a glass. Looking into a mirror emphasizes gleaning an accurate perception of what one looks like. What is the mirror? The best way to answer this is to let Scripture interpret Scripture. The Bible is very plain at this point. In James 1, through 25, we read, But be doers of the word, and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he 
be blessed in his doing. The mirror is the word of God. When we look into its pages, we see both ourselves and our Lord Jesus. When we look into the word of God, the Holy Spirit reveals we are men and women who are unrighteous and deserving of eternal punishment. The word of God shows us what the Lord Jesus Christ has done for us. 1 Peter 3.18 says, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, you and me, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. The Lord Jesus died for us to pay our penalty, the righteous for the unrighteous, with the purpose of what? To bring us to God. We see that he alone can restore and redeem us to a right standing with God. When we look again into the word of God with eyes of faith, having had our faces unveiled, we see the Lord Jesus and who he is and what he has done for those who believe, who who place their trust in him alone. We are to behold the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. Erasmus the great scholar of the Reformation, gave to the world one of the greatest literary achievements, the first Greek New Testament ever published. In the preface of this work, Erasmus wrote these words, On these pages you will see the face of Jesus. You will see the Lord himself, the whole Christ, more fully and more completely than if he stood before you today. When we read the Bible, our primary motivation should not be only to learn or even how to live a godly life, but to see the Lord Jesus Christ in every passage. Paul himself said, I decided to know nothing among you except the Lord Jesus Christ and him crucified. Donald Gray Barnhouse was a pastor of a great church in Philadelphia. One summer, and he liked to do this every summer, he took a group of his church members too. At that time, it was one of the largest amusement parks in the world. And he was fascinated by this certain ride. And the, the description of this ride, it was, a, it was a 30-foot long barrel. It was 8-foot tall, and it had been flipped down on its side. And a motor had been attached to it so that this barrel would rotate. Well, the object was to walk through the barrel without falling down. And uh, Dr. Barnhouse was fascinated by this, and he was, he was ready to show his parishioners that he was a pretty talented guy. So he told the, the operator of the barrel sitting on a stool, kind of like I am, he says, put it on the lowest speed. And so he did, and Dr. Barnhouse calculated how he was going to do this, and so he set off uh, into the barrel he hadn't gotten very, very few steps, and he got um, the center of gravity, got higher than the rest of him, and he fell flat on his wherever bottom, I guess, and stumbled and, and couldn't even get back up until the man turned it off, and he got up, and he stomped out, and everybody, all his, you can imagine what the church's response to that was. They were jeering and, and giving him a hard time about it, and he said, Turn that thing back on. I know I can do it. He, he uh, 
started out again, but his performance was only a repeat of the first one. So this just made him more aggravated and more frustrated and angrier. And he stumbled out this time and he said, has anyone ever walked through this thing without stumbling and falling down? <laughs> and the operator said, well, sure, that's what it's here for. <laughs> and he said, well, turn it back on. I know I can do it too. And the operator of the barrel turned to him and he says, would you like me to tell you the secret? <laughs> well, he was all ears. He said, sir, before you try it again, stand at the mouth of the barrel, look to the far end and tell me what you see. He says, well, I see a mirror. And what do you see in that mirror, sir? He said, well, I see myself. He said, forget that. Completely put it out of your mind. Don't allow yourself to think about it again. What else do you see in the mirror? He says, well, I see you sitting on a stool. He said, that's the secret. You need a fixed vertical object to look at as you walk. Deliberately put the rolling barrel out of your mind, looking only at the reflection of me in the mirror. When you get to the far end, quickly touch the mirror, and rapidly turn around, fixing your gaze on me again, and walk out. Barnhouse calculated this as the barrel rolled, and then as he entered it and began to walk with his eyes fixed, on the reflection of the man in the stool. He made it to the other end. He reached the other end of the barrel, touched the mirror, and quickly turned to face the operator, walking rapidly out of the barrel. Well, this time the congregation, the parishioners, were clapping and applauding and, and congratulating him on his success. Short time later, the Holy Spirit spoke to this great preacher's hearts. And if you know anything about Donald Barnhouse, he looked at everything on this planet as an example of somehow he could point people to the Lord. He would take a pen and he would use every part of that pen to describe salvation or the gospel to people. So it wasn't a surprise that he used this uh, experience for the same thing or in a different way to actually to believers. He said, you, the motivated person, represent the committed Christian. He's determined to complete his assignment and finish his course. The barrel represents the Christian life with all its potential and possibility for success and failure with all its roll and tumble. The operator represents the Lord himself, the one upright point of reference and the one who determines the speed of the barrel of life. And finally, the mirror represents the word of God and its primary purpose is to afford us a clear captivating reflection of the Lord. We are to spend our days beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord Jesus. And then one day we will touch the mirror for the last time. <laughs> and turn and see him face to face. <clears throat> the one secret of balance and victory for time and eternity is to behold the Lord Jesus in his glory. As we begin beholding the glory of the Lord, a transformation that ultimately reflects our glorification begins to slowly occur in our lives. As we go on beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, we are being transformed into the same image from glory 
to glory. We can see God's grace in this transformation. The verb, our being transformed, describes an ongoing process. As we go on beholding, we go on being transformed. The transformation is dependent on the beholding. The word being transformed means the change is something done to us, not something done by us. The beholding is ordained of God as the means by which He transforms us. And the transformation is totally and exclusively His work. The verb being transformed is the massive Greek word, are you ready? Metamorphumatha. Well, that sounds pretty familiar, doesn't it? And that's where we get the word metamorphosis. Metamorphosis is how a tadpole becomes a frog or how a caterpillar becomes a beautiful butterfly. The word describes an inward change of nature that emerges on the outside of the life. Now, I don't know if a tadpole and a butterfly change on the inside. I kind of doubt that they do, but you get the picture, right? This is the same word that is used in the New Testament in Matthew 17, 2, when our Lord Jesus was transfigured before Peter, James, and John. This is also the same word used in Romans 12, 2, which says, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. The growth of this transformation is a slow, continual process. We often use the word glory to refer to heaven and heavenly things. Oh, that's glorious. The Lord is glorious. Heaven is going to be glorious. But as used for more even in another greater way in the New Testament. Glory is actually the word for the weightiness of the character of God. So the phrase from glory to glory means that we are to progress from one stage to another in the development of the character likeness of our Lord Jesus Christ in our lives. Remember that metamorphosis, the way it's used here, is an inward change of nature that reveals itself through an outward visible change. It is God's design that a Christian develops consistently from one display of the character of God to another display of the character of God to this world and to, to one another. What is the goal of this transformation? What's the goal of this process of beholding and transforming? The goal is identified in the phrase into the same image. What is that image? It is the image of the person whom we are beholding. We will be changed into the same image of Christ. That's our ultimate transformation. Will we see it here on earth? No. One day we will when we see him face to face. We will be like him. We will see him totally as he is. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Are you here today and you have to say, I've never really seen Jesus in all his glory? Let me encourage you, just like that 
uneducated man encouraged Charles Haddon Spurgeon, look to Jesus and live. See him bleeding. See him dying on the cross. See him buried. See him raised to life. See him seated on the throne beside his Father in heaven, victorious over sin and death and hell for your sake. Believers, we also must continue to look to our Lord Jesus. Look past all the distractions in this life and look intentionally away from them. Look into the mirror of God's Word and see your sinful self and remember that our Lord Jesus Christ paid your debt and is continuing to cleanse you and make you a new creation. Did you hear that? Continuing to make you and me a new creation. Then look into the mirror of God's Word. Look away from yourself and see the Lord Jesus Christ. You say, How do I do that? How do I behold him? Read and seek to understand the word of God daily. You say, but the Bible is so hard to understand. You know what? There's been a lot of men that have done a lot of great searching and translating and researching and digging out the English words for you and me that come as close to the Greek as they can. Say, I, yeah, don't, I don't want to go Greek. I, I can't do that. I get it. But you know what? You can, you can get a dictionary and look up one of these words and you get really close to what it means because that's what they did. They did all the hard work. You say, but I still don't get it. You know what? You've got five elders in this church that will help you if you don't get what a passage of Scripture is saying. You may have a brother or sister or a father or a mother that you can go to. Children, don't think that I'm just talking to adults here. Remember how old I told, told you Spurgeon was when he started reading about God and learning about God? He was just six years old. And he started learning about God. You guys have an incredible mind. And your mom and dad can help you. See Jesus. So so don't give yourself an excuse of saying, I can't understand. You know why? Because you have the same Holy Spirit that I I have. You have the same Holy Spirit that your pastor has. God wants to teach you about himself. He wants you to see Jesus in the fullness of his glory. And he will. Don't rely on this sermon this morning. Don't rely on a once a week message to get you through. Get into the Word of God every day for yourself. Pray. Talk to God daily. Have a personal daily relationship with your Savior and Lord. Hunger to see Jesus every time you open the Word of God. Seek his face daily in Bible study and prayer. Hide the word of God in your heart. Memorize it. Meditate on it. Write down one one verse that you want to memorize and stick it in your pocket and open it back up and look at it in the middle of the day. Type it into your phone and bring it up at break time at 
middle of the day, the end of the day, and rehearse the Word of God. Make it important. Give it a reason. Realize that it's the most important thing we can put into our minds. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full into His wonderful face. And the things of this earth will grow strangely dim in the light of His glory and grace.